You're listening to the podcast version of How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. For our August 30th show about the health effects of GMOs, I talked with members of the science community and health community about what might be driving the increase in autoimmune diseases, asthma, and allergies. Now, of course, there was a lot more to talk about than was possible during our broadcast. So here's an extended version of the interviews with experts and National Jewish. It's one of the world's leading research centers about allergies and respiratory illnesses. I spoke with immunologist Andy Liu. Andy Liu, is it true that autoimmune diseases are the disease of our time? Could be put that way. I guess the same could be said for allergies and asthma, which we might think of as not necessarily autoimmune, but abnormal immune responses to things that are our immune system shouldn't really care about, shouldn't be worried about. It all looks like features of immune dysregulation. We might even put autism in there maybe because it's another disease or condition where in its extreme cases it may have some tie-in with an immune response, maybe. Yeah, when it comes to autism, I wouldn't be knowledgeable, so I can't really say. Well, let's stick with the other three A's then. Autoimmune diseases, asthma, and allergy. With allergies and asthma, perhaps we may understand it even a little bit more than with autoimmunity in terms of what's been happening in our populations. And it looks like it's been going up maybe about 50% per decade since we've been tracking it, which is about the 1960s. That's a huge amount. Is this just because we're getting better at diagnosing? There's no doubt that part of it is we get better at diagnosing. And as we get better at diagnosing, then the prevalence looks like it's going up. And that's true for all conditions as we come to be more knowledgeable about them. But actually with allergies, you can allergy test. And so you can then look at the studies with allergy tests, and you can see that that's sort of an adjusted number, that 50% per decade. Until about the 1990s or so, this is in the United States, and then it's been more plateaued or leveling off since then. Well, when you say it's adjusted, you mean that if you sort out the effect of people becoming more aware of how to diagnose this condition. And just look at how many people have allergies. The number has been doubling every 20 years for... Yeah, I think that's fair. But then you said it seems to be leveling off as though this doubling is starting to taper off now after the 1990s, or is it still going up? Whether it's still going up or not is not really clear. What you can see is that If you look at different countries, you can see that the rate has been going up at about the same rate, but the actual prevalence between different countries can vary quite a bit, and that's curious in itself, like why some countries have a higher rate of allergies, asthma, and autoimmunity, and other countries lower. Well, the good news is that we're getting better at diagnosing these things. The bad news is that we don't want to see more of this in the world because more people are getting it. Exactly. There's a sense that where we're modernized, then that's where the rates are highest, but they're plateauing. But in the developing nations, that's where the rates are lowest, but they're still on that rapid rise phase. And so the actual global burden is still highly on the rise. Out of 100 people in the United States, how many people have allergies right now? So allergies would be about 50%. It's actually slightly over 50%. Um, Asthma is probably running around 10%. Autoimmune diseases such as celiac disease, I think it's around 1% of the population, roughly. 
Yeah, I don't know about the autoimmune disease prevalence. It's lower, and that's in part why there's less known about the autoimmune diseases, just because you need much bigger populations to study in order to get an accurate number if it's less common. But, for example, food allergies. We recently did a, a national study on the prevalence of food allergies in the United States. That's running around 4% now. And when I say food allergies, I mean the classical food allergies where people get hives or um, have trouble breathing with them. So you mean a food allergy that's related to IgE as opposed to one of the food sensitivity ones that's related to what, IgA? You said it better than I, w than I said it. Yeah, it's the IgE-mediated food allergies is what I mean when I say around 4%. Well, that's not what we want, is it? No, not really. What we'd like is we'd like to understand why that's happening and if we can intervene in some way that's safe and effective. Well, let's go through a list and just say what we're going to be touching upon, and then we can talk about each one in some more detail. Yeah, that sounds good, Shelley. Okay. Well, there's something called the hygiene hypothesis, where the less dirt someone's around, the cleaner their environment when they're young the more likely they are to have allergies and asthma and autoimmune diseases. Is there some possibility for that one? Yeah, so the hygiene hypothesis, we might like to put it in the terms of dirt, but it may actually have to do more with microbes, in particular bacteria, that may um, be healthful as opposed to some that may be harmful, and that there may be a, um, a helpful exposure to bacteria that's protective, more bacteria, more diversity, less certain pathogens. It may have to do with, uh, more with a, a microbial, not just a microbial burden that we grow up in, but it may also have to do with the types of microbes that we live with. But that's been going on for about 150 years since these conditions were first identified. Okay, so that's one theory. There's the modern Western diet, the fact that we have so much processed food, we have so much sugar in the Western diet, it's just not the back-on-the-farm in the developing nation diet. I don't know how much we know it attributes directly to having, let's say, a high sugar or a GMO or a fast food diet. But if those types of foods are supplanting what would be, let's say, um, a diet that you might eat if you lived on a farm and were eating your own produce, and that produce was coming with a microbial community that's healthful, that's how it might happen. So it may not, it may be an indirect effect of having substituted a healthful diet that actually is not so much about the foods, but it's about the microbes that come with those foods. Well, if I shake your hand, then there's about a hundred different microbes on my hand, different kinds, and there's about a hundred different kinds on your hand, and when we shake hands, our microbes protect us from each other's microbes. There's something about the world of microbes on us that can be protective and help our immune system know who we are and who we're not. It's so interesting that we're germ-phobic, and yet we're just coated with microbes on the outside and inside and in our environment around us, large communities of microbes that are largely healthful. Well, are you a fan, then, of people constantly using antibacterial soaps and keeping their houses totally pristine? Cleanliness is one thing, and microbial communities is another thing. There are some microbes that we don't want to be around. Yeah, and sometimes um, just the way antimicrobials are, you end up wiping out the good with the bad. When we look at the hygiene hypothesis, there are some theoreticians who say it's not just that we haven't been on the farm long enough around all those healthy microbes. 
it's not just that we're eating food that is so washed and heated and baked and fried that there's not a microbe left alive on it. It's also the fact that so many of us and so many of our children are exposed to a lot of antibiotics and also our immune systems are exposed to half vaccines. You know, we're given shots where it isn't a live illness that we get. So in, in all of these ways, there's less of a real world being applied to our own immune system. There's probably sometimes when we're using antibiotics more than we should. On the other hand, there's times when we can see that we need those antibiotics. If you look in almost any given month, there's some outbreak of uh, major gastrointestinal bacteria like salmonella, where you see people getting ill and dying from it. And I guess the latest was they're tracking it back to chickens that people are raising in their own yards, which generally speaking would be not just a good, but probably a great thing to do for many reasons. So there's trade-offs, there's some caution about how you do any of this. The microbes that are on the outside of our bodies, but also the microbes that are inside of our bodies are all part of this picture. Antibiotics can mess up the balance of the microbes in our guts, in our digestive tract, in our noses, in our lungs. It's those trade-offs of the benefits and then the, the harm that can come from the different things that we do. You know, we try to weigh those things off in the bigger picture, either as myself as a doctor, but also myself as a, a parent or just as a human, what's common sense. You know, I'm thinking about salmonella because there was a recent study, I think, in rodents where the bacteria that causes stomach ulcers, Helicobacter pylori, was wiped out of these rodents, and they got sicker from a salmonella infection than when they had that bacteria in them. So there is this interesting thought that even among bacteria, if you wipe out one, it can cause a more severe reaction with another. That's a good example of what you often see with these microbial exposures, that there's paradoxes. Sometimes they look harmful, other times, the same bacteria can look protective. And the helicobacter is a good example of that, where we first came to understand its existence in ulcers, perhaps as a cause of ulcers. But then we could also see that perhaps in how a lot of people were originally exposed to helicobacter, which is in early childhood, at a time when it didn't seem to cause ulcers in those children, that it seemed perhaps maybe more protective. And in fact, most people in the world who have that bacteria in their stomachs, they don't get ulcers. Some of them do, but not all of them. So for some of them, it may be a useful companion. Yeah, Shelley, and that's I think, really gets to the heart of some of this, which is how is it that the same germ can be protective for most people or just not cause a problem for most people and be there, and yet in some people that it causes disease? The term I would say there is we're trying to understand how susceptibility occurs. How are some people susceptible? We can understand it clearly in some circumstances where there's um, immune deficiency. If somebody has a, a really impaired immune system, then if they get a germ that wouldn't bother anybody else who's immune competent, they can get a germ and become very ill. For example, in cancer chemotherapy, where we end up suppressing an immune system is part of the therapy for cancer, and then those people become very susceptible to the germs that happen to live on them and around them. But those are not as common as the common circumstance of allergy, where if you have half the population becoming allergic, how do the germs fit into that? 
partly it might be the cleanliness of our world right now and the fact that we have so many ways that we wipe out the immune assaults when a child is young probably means that we have way fewer children who die, but it might mean we have more that have allergies and asthma. Yes, so there might be that kind of trade-off, but it may not be so extreme. It may have to do more with not so much the harmful bacteria that can kill you, but have to do more with the bacteria that are generally healthful or diverse that are around you and how those educate your immune system at an early age. Well, one example of that would be what kind of bacteria do we invite in? Do we invite in probiotics to help our guts and our whole microbial community understand itself better? Do we do vaccines so that we vaccinate ourselves against certain autoimmune or or immune system reactions? That's kind of like an allergy shot, actually, is a vaccine. The vaccines actually are... In some ways, what you're doing is you're giving the germ. You're giving a version of the germ to induce an immune response, so that way your immune system learns about it and can protect you against that germ the first time it sees it as a live organism. And so the vaccines themselves, their potential to cause harm in this hygiene hypothesis type way is maybe less thought uh, to occur than the antibiotics. Okay, because vaccines aren't killing off the good guys along with the bad guys. They're just waking up the immune system to one issue or another. Maybe not as strongly as if you or I caught the measles or if we caught chickenpox to get a vaccine for those. But at least it does seem to wake up the immune system some, and it doesn't wipe out bacteria. And there actually are examples of vaccines that are given, not so much in the United States, but outside of the United States where they're given to babies as a way of protecting them against germs that are associated with less allergy. What kind of vaccines are those that are associated with less allergy? Well, the one where there's been the strongest signal is around BCG, which is a vaccine that's given to babies often to help reduce the likelihood that they could develop tuberculosis. So in tuberculosis endemic countries, they would be more likely to use it. We, here in the United States, tuberculosis is rare, and the, the BCG vaccine is not a great vaccine, so we, we tend not to get it in the United States. But in other countries, it's the norm. That vaccine, when it's given, it reduces the incidence of allergies. Yeah, there's a, a number of places or studies where people looked at the prevalence of allergic disease relative to getting the vaccine, and it looked like those who got the vaccine and got a good immune response to the vaccine in particular, that they end up being protected against the development of allergies in later life. And that could be because tuberculosis is the kind of disease that wears down your immune system, which might make it more confused so that it would be more allergic. It's possible, yeah. So there's lots of ways that these things don't just go in one straight direction. And let's look at diet next, because there are issues and questions about whether the modern diet is something that drives some allergies. And if we just don't look at GMOs yet, if we don't look at pesticides, and we just look at food, there has been talk about studies where if a mother doesn't breastfeed her baby and instead the child gets dairy early on or the child gets wheat early on, that those children may end up with a stronger incidence of some autoimmune diseases such as type 1 diabetes or celiac disease, which is an intolerance to wheat. I'm sorry, as far as whether breastfeeding protects against autoimmune disease, I'm not well-versed or knowledgeable about that, but that's been looked at a lot in the development of allergies. 
the studies have been mixed on the development of allergies and the development of asthma. The initial studies then led to better studies and then to very strong studies. The studies still come out on both sides of the fence. I don't know what to think about the breastfeeding relative to allergies, except that it's very clear the effect couldn't be particularly strong since it's not always in the same direction. We put on our common sense hat and say, okay, well, maybe it's breastfeeding is not particularly protective on allergies or asthma, but it's great for many other reasons. The overall benefit falls on the side of breastfeeding. That makes sense, but I'm, you know, we all get to be medical detectives when we talk about these things, and I, I can't help but wonder when those breastfeeding studies were done, were the researchers looking at what the mother was eating because some things that a mom eats will transfer through to the baby. Yeah, and I think that's a, another great question about how does maternal diet influence the likelihood of developing food allergies. There haven't been the studies that have necessarily been very rigorous on tracking day to day what mothers are eating, making sure that they couldn't be eating, for example, milk or egg occultly, like um, you know, reading food labels very carefully. Um, so it hasn't been done at that level, but I'd say that th there have been quite a few studies done uh, looking at what mothers are eating and their tendency for the babies to develop food allergies, and it's been a little bit mixed there too. If a mother has type 2 diabetes, if a mother has some of those diseases that are linked to diet, does that affect the likelihood that her child will have allergies? Type 2 diabetes, no. Autoimmunity, yes. You tend to see the prevalence of allergies, asthma, and autoimmunity rising in the same places, in the same countries. Well, it is such a mystery. Now my mind's going back to the breastfeeding, and I'm thinking about cows and calves, because when a calf is born, the mother will lick her baby calf over and over and over again. And one thing that that does is it transfers the microbes from the mother and her environment to the calf and helps the calf kind of have a healthy set of microbes that are just right for where they live. There is a lot of good things that mothers pass on right away, right in the beginning. I mean, certainly even in the womb. But as soon as they're born, mothers are passing on their microbial community to their newborn infant. Is there a difference between a baby that is born with C-section and a baby that's born going through the vaginal canal in terms of likelihood of allergies later on in life? Babies who are born vaginally do gain their mother's uh, microbial flora through that process. They are uh, less likely to develop certain types of allergies. So there are some studies that have looked at that. And that's one thought perhaps behind breastfeeding too is that it's more skin contact and that may actually help a baby get more microbes. Yeah. But what if we get to things like pesticides and GMOs, genetically modified organisms? There is some concern that both of these increase the overall background load of inflammation in a person's body. And there is some indication that inflammation can drive the immune system to get confused about what is friend and what is foe. Could there be something to pesticides, environmental toxins, and genetically modified organisms tying in with some of the increases in allergies, asthma, and autoimmune disease? Yeah, I think there is. And I believe that there are some studies that show some linkage. How rigorous is our understanding that that's true? That's usually built up through a burden of evidence. While there are some studies, I don't think that the burden is 
of evidences sort of at that beyond a reasonable doubt stage. It's easier politically to study whether or not germs are affecting our immunity than it is to study whether something as important to our food supply or perceived to be as important as pesticides and genetically modified organisms are. There's some thought that those don't get to be studied as much because it's a bigger political hot potato if something shows up as bad in one of those. Those are some important public health questions, and my sense is that there are quite a few investigators looking at some of those things, certainly the the effect of pesticides on human health and disease. Um, They don't happen to be in particular what I have been looking at. Mine's been more on the relationship between microbes, not necessarily them still alive, but their remnant components after they're dead, the microbes still are very immune stimulatory. Well, that's an interesting one because just this last week I talked with an ag scientist who told me that in May in Canada there was a study done of women where they drew blood and looked for the toxin from Bt corn, the toxin that has been grafted into this genetically modified corn so that they don't have to spray as much of a pesticide called Bt on it, and instead it's internal to the corn. The thought has always been that this toxin that's put in corn to keep the bugs from eating it stays with the corn. If it goes into our bodies, our stomachs digest out the protein into little tiny amino acids, and there's no evidence of that protein anymore. Well, the study indicated that there is some degree of passing into the bloodstream of mothers and their children and through the placenta of this toxin. So I'm not familiar with the study, so I I can't really comment on Bt corn for its protein, how they detected it, and necessarily what that means. So I'm going to just talk in theory. What would this mean if a bacteria from GMO corn is actually getting into the bloodstream? Would that be fine for immune system, or theoretically, is that not such a good thing? I wouldn't know about that protein, but what I'd say is there are lots of proteins that are constantly going through our system, Um, whether it's foods that we eat or things that we inhale. Our immune system is amazing and elegant in how much it's seeing and learning. In the healthful state, it should be able to distinguish what is potentially harmful from what is not. The healthful person, their immune system is constantly seeing proteins of foreign substances Um, through what we ingest and what we inhale and what gets on our skin from an immune system it's not getting all worked up over it. Well, most of those that you've described are hitting one of the barriers in our body and they're being kept on the proper side of the barrier. Is it a proper side of the barrier for a protein to go into the bloodstream? Our systems sample that and you can find evidence that the immune system is learning about all of those proteins. Well, that's right. The immune system has these little keyholes that it kind of peeks into the gut through these little openings and pulls out a little bit, takes a sip. It's constantly sampling the environment around it to learn about it. It couldn't be that the immune system only saw the proteins broken down into their amino acids because then it couldn't learn about the differences between what's healthful and harmful. It would need to be able to see the whole proteins. What you're describing is a way that the immune system takes parts of what has been through our digestion or whatever bugs have come into us 
and looks at them and talks it over so it's ready to deal with this if it appears in big amounts. But is there some threshold? If these foreign proteins get into the body in a certain amount, then things get more confused. Where if it gets too high, is it becoming more problematic? I think sometimes when we look at toxins, toxins tend to look like that, um, that above a certain threshold, it's, it's problematic. There are some examples of how it can be the other way. If there's not enough, if it's relatively low level, it's not enough for the immune system to learn that, uh, to develop a protective response, and then one that, once that response is, has been induced and is no longer needed to settle it down, which is really what the immune system needs to learn how to do well, is to distinguish what's harmful from what's benign. But once the harm has been dealt with, to settle itself, to self-regulate it and to settle itself back down. So rather than stewing about whatever it is, it should take care of it and then move on. Right. Well, so that goes back to the, the hygiene hypothesis, the thought that we don't have enough stuff pushing the immune system to really wake up and fight and then move on. Exactly. It, some of it was a sense of not enough, but others, you know, all along is a sense of what specifically are the microbes that are healthful and help the immune system develop or maintain it in a healthful state so it's largely protective but not inflamed. Yes, inflammation is a good thing if it's for a short amount of time. If I cut my skin, I want my skin to be inflamed and get rid of the problem. If there's an invader, I want my immune system to get inflamed and fight really hard for a little while. I don't want it to keep going. And, and that's one reason I think I'm curious about food and pesticides and genetically modified organisms because unlike most pathogen invaders like a bacteria or a virus, if those are in our environment, they're there a lot of the time. And they're there at kind of a pervasive level, so it's not like getting a cut or getting a bacteria or getting a virus that comes in and needs to be fought. It's, it's there all the time as something that if it's getting through into our blood, how does the immune system deal with something that's not us, but it can't really get rid of it? That's part of the elegance of the immune system, not as a wall, but as something that um, was uh, developed to exist in the context of a microbial soup. If we just use the example of, of food exposures, Specific food exposures themselves would occur whenever we eat the food, but compared to the community of bacteria that are actually living in our intestinal tract, that's the constant exposure. It's my understanding that if a person's gut is healthy, for the most part it keeps those proteins and food from going through in a larger, more undigested way. They are broken down more often into the basic amino acids, kind of like taking a tinker toy device and pulling it down to just the sticks and knobs. In a person who's not healthy for some reason, the gut becomes permeable, it becomes leaky, and more of those undigested food proteins or undigested whatever they are proteins can get into the bloodstream. That's more confusing to the immune system. Yeah, when the intestine is perhaps a bit unhealthy, it can be a bit leaky. And then if it's leaky, then the bigger proteins of the foods come across, and that can uh, be associated with more problems. But that leakiness is also usually associated with irritation or inflammation. There's already a breakdown of the immune system right there.
what kind of markers do you look for to say, hmm, this person's immune system is out of whack and more prone to giving this person allergies or asthma? In allergies, we have some very helpful markers. It's called IgE, and we can measure it in the blood, and that we can measure it specifically what that IgE recognizes to foods or different inhaled allergens. Right. These are, these are officers who each get to wear a different uniform depending on who they fight. So you have the I fight the bee sting, IgE guy, and then you have the I deal with peanuts, and I fight peanuts if I see any of that protein, immune system, IgE guy. They're very specific. They are what recognizes either, like you said, bee venom or peanuts or whatever the allergen is, and they link it to the immune response that makes you allergic. But it's not exactly clear actually what that IgE was for in the first place. The thinking was that it's helpful against parasitic responses. In modern societies, we've evolved away from being colonized by parasites. But in lots of other parts of the world where sanitation is not so great, then almost everyone's colonized with parasites. It's not real clear what it was doing to be healthful in the first place, but it is great at triggering allergic responses. Well, and you're reminding me of something I left off my list, which is roundworms. If someone has a mild roundworm intestinal parasitic infection, they're less likely to have allergies. Yeah, and so that's one of the other fascinations is how can parasites be protective, especially because parasites themselves induce that same type of immune response that is allergic. It makes that IgE go up quite high. Are they injecting our guts with something that's soothing? Or do they have some long-standing relationship which makes everything settle down and say, okay, now we're complete? They do seem to induce this part of the immune response that's self-regulating or settling. And some people have looked at that um, in some detail and have found like what kinds of molecules that parasites are made of that are actually doing that. You don't recommend to many of your patients to swallow some roundworms, though, do you? No, we haven't. Even the people who study roundworms and their immune responses, they won't give them to anyone to try to help get rid of their allergic diseases or asthma. There are clinical trials uh, with parasites for um, gastrointestinal autoimmune diseases to see if something beneficial can be developed with parasites that can cause the beneficial effect that you want but aren't invasive. Well, and there's Dr. Ose and his stool transplants. Yeah, I don't know about the stool transplants. I've heard about them, but I don't, scientifically, I don't know about them. Well, we're certainly talking about some esoteric ways that allergies might be treated, but how about the side of how you would look at whether or not somebody's immune system is sick or not? Are there certain inflammatory markers that you would expect to see are high? Are there certain immune markers that you would expect to see are low? Yeah, so sometimes you can uh, find that the immune system is overactive in some of the uh, inflammatory or autoimmune diseases. There are measures of overactive immunity. And then for some of the autoimmune diseases too, you can find different types or different parts of the immune system that are recognizing self. And then that's how you actually can make the diagnosis. So similar to allergies where you can find the IgE that is detecting foods or inhaled allergens and causing the disease response. You can find the IgGs or IgAs 
to self molecules like to DNA that would be in lupus and thyroid autoimmune thyroid disease. Oh, so if this thyroid is being attacked or the immune system, the lymph system is being attacked, then sometimes you can find uh, an IgG or an IgA antibody that is going after the body. Yeah, exactly. And it's very specific. And that's how the immune system is not only recognizing self, but that's how the immune system is getting triggered to respond to self cells, which is the autoimmunity. You know, there's, there's a phrase that gets used more often these days called three-way molecular mimicry. I'm familiar with the concept. There's some foreign particle that's gotten into their body that heightens the concern of the immune system that happens to match their particular body protein. So when the immune system says, always remember to attack that invader, it gets confused and attacks itself. Yeah, there's a couple examples of molecular mimicry between microbes and self, where microbial proteins look like self proteins, and because it comes packaged in a microbe, then perhaps that's how the immune system learns about that self protein as perhaps something harmful and then it starts going after self. So there's a couple examples in autoimmunity. I'm not so familiar with any thinking about how that might be relevant to allergy or asthma, but it's possible. Well, it would be something where whatever the protein that comes into the body and gets into the bloodstream, if it wears a red hat with polka dots on it, and that person's body happens to make proteins that have a red hat with little diamonds that are white on the red hat, is some kind of confusion that's comparable to that. You know, and that example is an interesting one about how good the healthful immune system is at being able to distinguish very fine and subtle differences, whether they're things that are part of us or things that are coding us or surrounding us all the time. The immune system's usually pretty good at sorting all that out. That would also indicate that if you have a new substance in the world, whether it's a pesticide or genetically modified organism. And there was concern that it was getting through the barriers of the stomach and the intestinal tract into the bloodstream. That one thing that would magnify the danger of it to the body is if the kind of protein it is ends up being similar to proteins in the body. If there's a certain epitope where the substance coming in is more likely to match our body's tissue if there's more of a match up there, there's more likely to be some risk. There could be something to that when it comes to autoimmune disease. In allergic disease, though, we know that almost anything that's external to us can serve as an allergen to some people. And some things can be an allergen to lots of people. Those molecules are largely foreign. They don't really look like self. The things that may be more likely to cause allergies are things that are fairly far from self because they look foreign. What's your hope for what will happen with allergies? First of all, that they will continue to plateau? Well, my hope is that we can figure out what's causing them. Then we can start to move the prevalence down. Hopefully with interventions that are easy and safe, effective, and not causing trade-offs. Well, that's right, because right now allergy treatments tend to have a lot of trade-offs. The steroids that are used can be kind of hard on a person's body. That's not the ideal way to treat an allergy. We're pretty good at treating allergies and asthma. I mean, we've gotten pretty far, although I'd say like in one of the areas that we're very active in, 
we have no approved therapies for food allergy. So there's one that we're, you know, we um, are really interested in trying to develop some therapies for people who already have the disease. But yeah, taking a step upstream, we don't have a good enough handle on the cause to be making a difference at this point. When we have a good enough handle on the cause, we'll know because we're making some recommendations and the prevalence of these very common conditions will be going down. I think there's good reason to be hopeful because there are places that we know of where children live today where their likelihood of developing allergies and asthma is not just a little less but quite a bit less. If it's going on naturally then it's just ours to sort out. Can I move to those countries? Um, sure. I mean, the tendency is places where um, people are farming with domestic animals or living close to their animals. Like if you go to developing countries, there are people who are living rural and they live with their animals in their home because that's the safest place to keep them. Otherwise, they either walk away or somebody might take them. The thinking is that it may have to do with enrichment of your microbial community by living close to animals like that. That was Andy Liu, an immunologist at the National Jewish Hospital based in Denver. You can hear more How on Earth interviews and episodes of the show by subscribing to our podcast through iTunes or by visiting our website at howonearthradio.org. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.